Imagine with me testing a, a toy, something like a jack-in-the-box, maybe. And you turn the, the crank, and you're just waiting for the moment that it'll pop open, but nothing happens. And then you turn it some more, a little quicker, and still nothing. And then you assume that it's defective, and you set it aside, and then finally it bursts open when you least expect it. And now imagine that you've been cranking the jack-in-the-box handle for 30 years, and nothing has happened yet. In Genesis chapter 11, we first met Abraham and his wife Sarah, Abram and Sarai at the time. But we learned something else noteworthy, not just their names, but we learned something noteworthy about Sarah in particular in chapter 11. As it introduces her, it says that she was barren. She had no child. And then the Lord called Abraham to leave Haran, the area that he lived in, He said, I want you to leave. I want you to go to the land that God would show him. And God promised him there in chapter 12, verse 2, that to make of Abraham, of him, like as in from you, I will make a great nation. Abraham arrives in the land of Canaan later in chapter 12, and the Lord appeared to him and said to your offspring, a very specific word, not your relatives, not your friends, to your offspring, I will give this land. Later in chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, the Lord says to Abraham once again, all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Later, chapter 15, Abraham asks a very good question. If we're, if we're living in the tension of the narrative, we should have this question as well. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Behold, you have given me no offspring. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, your very own son will be your heir. Another 13 years later or so, after his slave wife, Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. God said this to Abraham, I will bless Sarah, your wife, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And God said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. That was chapter 17, verses 16 to 21. Soon after that, God visits Abraham again. Do you notice a theme here? This is the point. God visits Abraham again in chapter 18. While eating the meal Abraham had provided for the Lord and for these angelic visitors, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Every time, over 30 years, six different instances, we see God coming to Abraham, recorded for us in Scripture, that God promises that Abraham will have a son with his wife Sarah. It starts off broad, offspring. You'll have a son You'll have a son with Sarah. You will call him Isaac. It's going to happen in a year. All of this leads us up to Genesis chapter 21. See, any story plot requires a conflict of some sort. Something to, to, uh, you don't want to just read about an everyday life, right? That's, That's a worthless story. Something's got to go wrong in some way, and that's what happens here. This tension's been built up ever since chapter 11, where we find out, but by the way, Sarah's barren. All right, now let's start the story. Like, that's her introduction as a character. Uh, not that it's not true, but this is, this is literature. God inspired true literature. This is what God wants us to think about. So there's a conflict that has to be introduced in any good story, and this is the best story, and a good author will allow tension to build toward a climax or resolution. A bad author, right, has to get it off the table. It's like, but a good author is like, no, 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 let's, actually, let's make this harder. Like, let's make this a little bit worse. Let's get tangled up in this a little bit more before we can do this. But nine chapters of tension? 30 years of tension? Yes. That kind of tension can make you sick to your stomach. 
right? As it just gets worse, like how bad can it get? And then you read the next chapter. It gets worse and it gets harder and it gets harder. And we've, I don't even remember how many months we've been talking about this. And then one author said, now at last we get our literary antacid, relieving the tension of the narrative to this point when we get to chapter 21. I hope you've turned there. If not, please do. Genesis chapter 21, we'll read verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah, as he said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is a very important passage in the course of Genesis and in the course of Scripture. Obviously, every passage is important. <laughs> uh, like that, I, one of my professors who started every lecture saying it was the most important lecture of the, of the year. Um, every text that I'm preaching ends up being my favorite text. This one is extra important, right? Extra, extra important because of everything that's been building up to it, right? God's promise is hanging in the balance and remains unfulfilled until we get to Genesis 21. It's at this point that brings all of God's promises into fruition. And then it also, so it, it's, it's a really important um, turning point or, or linchpin. It's a centerpiece of the book of Genesis because of everything leading up to it. And then really everything in scripture that flows from this point, built on this as a foundation of God's keeping his promises to his people. It moves God's redemption plan forward, or we, at least we see that God's redemption plan continues to move forward. It had been moving forward, but we see it. And then we build off from that. So here's what I think God has for us as his people from this text. That God visits his people to keep his promises for our eternal joy. God visits his people to keep his promises for our eternal joy. We'll break that apart kind of piece by piece, or as you can see here, kind of line by line. God visits his people. I read this, and uh, the word just sort of passed right over. This is how Moses begins, right? The first few words, the Lord, right? The Lord visited Sarah. And again, my eyes were just like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I know he did. Let's get on to Isaac. Uh, but this is actually a very important and, and interesting word in Scripture. And it's interesting, the word visit, actually, like other translations actually uh, specify that. The ESV keeps it. I can see both benefits, but I, but I didn't know that it was in so many places thinking about it. And so I'm glad that they kept visit here to catch my attention. But it is a little bit of an interesting word. It, it can mean two very different things. I looked it up in a dictionary. That's how I know that. One, stay temporarily with someone uh, or at a place as a guest or tourist. Oh, just visiting. But then you also have, and I really do think this is very different, there's also visiting can mean going to see someone or something for a specific purpose, such as to make an inspection or receive uh, or to give professional advice or help. Right? Like tourism or like inspection. But we say visit for both of those things. I think we're familiar with both of those. Like if I stop by your workplace, everyone would know I'm just visiting you. Just a, I'm not there to work. Definitely not there to work. Uh, well, I mean, it'd be my work, but not your work. I may even need a visitor's badge from security before I could get in, right? Just visiting. Don't ask him anything. Don't rely on him for anything. He's just, just a passing through. But if the CEO of your company uh, or a client of your company stopped by, they would also be visiting. Uh, but everyone's would, response would be very different. Uh, I remember Jeremy talking about the CEO coming for a visit. Very different than if I had stopped. <laughs> no one would even notice, but like red carpet, everything's spick and span, right? When that visit 
happens. Do you see the difference? There's like a difference between my family visiting my brother-in-law at the army base where he's stationed um, and the president visiting that army base, right? But it would be a visit. His would be newsworthy. Mine would not be newsworthy, hopefully. I think we'd be received a little differently, though. And when the president visits that's the terminology, right? President visits a war zone or a hospital bed or the site of a tragedy. It's a big deal because they're there to accomplish something. They're making a statement. They're, they're offering assistance, right? They're, their grief means more than my grief could ever mean for them, right? But it's still a visit in both senses. See, God didn't just stop by to say hi to Sarah. He wasn't there as a tourist or a guest. He visited in order to do something. He came in his official capacity as Sarah's God. Interestingly, the dictionary that I looked at noted this as well. There was another definition a little bit further down that said, chiefly in biblical use of God, come to a person or place in order to bring comfort or salvation. They actually had it in the, in the dictionary, like Apple's dictionary. It's like, hey, here you go. And, and they got half of it. Like, they were, they were halfway right as to what visit means, but I was glad they at least recognized that. So what are some other visits that God makes? Genesis 50, verse 24, we see the term pop up. At the end of his life, Joseph says to his brothers, they're in Egypt, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham. And then 400 years later, as we move into the book of Exodus and into that time period of Moses and God delivering his people, Exodus 4.31, we see that promise made to Abraham, reiterated to, I think, Isaac, also spoken by Joseph, coming to pass. In Exodus 4.31, the people of Israel believed when Moses is speaking to them, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Not every visit of God is for good, though. It's not always comfort and salvation. That's where they only got half of it. Three times in Exodus, God describes himself as the God who visits iniquity, as in the judgment of his curse comes on the guilty. But then in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, the destitute widow Naomi heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Right? He had visited them with famine. Now he visits them with food. First Samuel, it says the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. There are others, but then Jeremiah stuck out to me as well, right? Because of this back and forth aspect, where again, God will visit the iniquity even of his people in chastisement and in judgment. He's going to bring that about, but then Jeremiah 29.10, this is the promise God spoke to Jeremiah about the people who were going into exile in Babylon. He says this, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. It's like every stage of God's unfolding plan of redemption in the lives of his people comes as the result of God's visiting his people. It's like every time the word pops up, it's like, oh, this is important. Like, I, that's just my mind, if my eyes just had gone right over it, but it shouldn't. This is a big deal. It's like in Genesis 8. Do you remember when it says that God remembered Noah? And if we just think about that from our perspective, it'd be like, seriously? After all that, God was just kind of like, oh, my word, that guy in the boat. Like, what am I going to do? Or ship? I'm supposed to say ship. Sorry about that. The, that guy in the ship. I, I knew there was something I was missing. That's not God. That, God remembering doesn't mean he had forgotten, and God visiting doesn't mean he was away. Instead, it means that the time for God to act had come. So time for God to do as he had always planned to do, right? The, the time hadn't come, and then when God remembers, when God visits, it means, ah, oh, the time has come. It is the hour, not the hour, not the hour, not my hour. My hour has come. Visited, one author said, is a common metaphor that that conveys that intervention of God in the affairs of humanity. Again, for good or for evil, for salvation or for judgment. We really see both. 
Because God visits unrepentant sinners to keep his word in judging and punishing them. If you, who, like me, are a sinner, if you remain unrepentant in your sin, then God will visit, not as a tourist, but as inspector, judge, king, and he will bring his wrath on all who remain unrepentant. But God also visits his people to keep his promises and to bring salvation and to bring the promised rescue. So if you are in Christ, you have turned and trusted, right? Then a visit is coming. And it's not just to stop by and inspect, but it's to act for your good and your deliverance and your eternal salvation. God is a God who visits his people. Isn't that wonderful? That God visits. Are you thankful that he's that kind of God? Let us, let us love God and give him thanks that he visits us. And if you come back next week, you'll hear more about God's visiting his people in the New Testament. God visits his people. Why? God visits his people to keep his promises. There's a, there's a, there's a purpose. That's how we know he's not just a guest. He's not just stopping by not just going to come and say hello, but he's going to keep his promises. He's going to act for our good. And this text has been crafted in such a way to draw attention to certain things. Now, ancient writers didn't put things in bold or in italics. They didn't underline things. Uh, No highlighters were used in ancient manuscripts. Instead, authors would use things like repetition They would use repetition. They would repeat things and use repetition to draw attention to them. To draw attention to what was important. So did you notice the repetition that fills this passage? Notice how many times it talks about God's word to them. Did you catch how many times it said that? Like, let's look again. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. They named, uh, she bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Three times, two verses later, circumcised Isaac as God had commanded him. So it's like if you start reading in chapter 21, you'd be like, boy, God has had a lot to say about this. That's the idea. He has spoken about this. He has said it. It's like every time he shows up to Abraham, this is the center point of what it is as it gets more and more specific. So if we miss the centrality of God's promise in this passage, we're going to completely miss the whole point of the passage. This is not just, oh, isn't it great because we love babies? A baby was born. Hooray. No. God's word is at the center of this. Promises were made, and now the promises have been kept. The birth didn't just happen. It happened because God did it just like he said he would. And Moses also wants to be crystal clear about who the father is and who the mother is of this baby. That's another point of repetition. Sarah conceived, verse 2, and bore to Abraham a son. Okay? Sarah conceived... Abraham's the father, there's a son. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, called him Isaac. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And then Sarah says it, yes, I have borne him a son. It's like, okay. It's like, uh, I despise the Amelia Bedelia books. Uh, because the author doesn't know pronouns, and I just get sick of saying Amelia Bedelia over and over and over again, right? It's just kind of like, I know who your title character is. Can you talk about something else? But no, the author won't do that. Uh, Well, the Lord's right. I'm not like annoyed that he keeps saying that, because that's the point of it. This is kind of like, listen, this isn't Hagar. This isn't Abimelech from last week who could have slept with Sarah, and this is an Ishmael that we're talking about. Abraham's the dad, Sarah's the mom, Isaac's the baby, just like God had promised. God visits his people to keep his promises. 
I mean, it's like 17 years ago when I first, uh, when I stopped introducing Leanne by her name, made a point to introduce her as my fiance as often as possible, right? This is like at the grocery store, it'd be like, oh, I think my fiance wants to check this thing out. Like going to the store, have you met my fiance? Yes, she's staying at our house. Like, okay, well, I knew that, but I, right? You just want to talk about it because it's such good news, surprisingly good news uh, for me, poor Leanne. But that's the type, it's, the good news is so great that you just have to say it a lot. You ever been that happy about something that it's just like, you just want to talk about it? You, you talk about it when there's no reason to talk about it, right? Like you insert that, and it's just like, like if you're showing up at a restaurant, like if Jackson and Josie went out to eat, and it's just kind of like, how many? Table for two? They would be like, no, table for three right? I'd just be like, oh, okay, who's coming to visit you? Oh, no, she's pregnant. We just wanted to talk about it again. Or maybe Ethan and Emma will do that. You can use that one. I'll go, feel free, right? It's just kind of like there's more people. Like, we're counting it on attendance because we just are so thankful for these lives. It's good news. It's worth talking about. Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac because God promised them that it would take place. Wonderful news worth repeating over and over When the Lord visited Sarah, he worked a true supernatural miracle for her. It was not a neat coincidence. It was not an unexpected benefit. It was not a providential blessing. It was an impossibility that occurred. They were both too old to have a baby together. And Sarah's barrenness had been a proven fact of her life for decades, even before she became too old to have this child. Yet here she is, pregnant with Abraham's baby, and she gives birth to a son. Without question, this is a marvelous story in and of itself, right? Amazing. And in the Old Testament, when we see God doing an amazing thing once, we should marvel, should be impressed, should give thanks and see God's glory displayed. When it happens one time, we should be impressed. But When we see God doing something marvelous repeatedly, we should start to wonder if we should expect it. See the difference of that, right? Like Balaam's donkey, like, whoa! But it only happened one time. So it's like, okay, God did a cool thing. And he did. But it's just like if every time there's a stubborn prophet and a donkey starts talking, be like, what's the thing with the donkey? So if, in the course of the Old Testament, if there's just one miraculous birth, it's God acting in an amazing way. But if there starts to be a pattern of miraculous births, maybe it's leading to something bigger. That's what we're talking about when we see patterns. We talk about types. Maybe these are shadows. No, there's no maybe about it, right? Maybe these are shadows pointing forward to something else. And that's what's happening here. So Sarah being barren and giving birth is a wonderful act of God's sovereign power. But then Isaac, this baby, his wife, Rachel, is also barren. Did I get it right? Is that Rebecca? It's Isaac and Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you, Lord, for that. I didn't misquote you. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is also barren for 20 years. And then she gives birth to Jacob and Esau. Hmm. And then Jacob's wife, Rachel, there we go. She's barren, but she gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin. And then a man named Manoah has a wife, and she's barren, but she gives birth to Samson, the mighty judge. And then the woman Hannah is barren, but she gives birth to Samuel. And all of these are examples of unlikely children of promise whose births draw attention to God's plan to redeem his people. It's like things get a little bit slow or stale in the narrative and be like, hey, we got another barren woman. Like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. It's like you would just start to, instead of like just being sad, you would start to expect like, oh, I know what's going to happen. Because I think every instance where a woman is introduced in the Old Testament as barren, she doesn't end up that way. Like barrenness could come as a curse, but when it's at the beginning of the introduction of her story, it's like, oh, God's going to do something here. It's like our ears perk up. We're just kind of like, oh, I wonder what that's going to happen, right? Because we start to expect. That's what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to expect these things, that these amazing, uh, unlikely children of promise 
are these types. They are shadows across the Old Testament leading us to the familiar promises that we heard today from Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He already has. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given like Isaac and like Jacob and like Joseph and like Samson and like Samuel, yet better than all of those. We can actually take this type or this pattern a little bit deeper than that. It's not just that we should start to expect an unlikely child of promise to be born, but it's more than just impossible births. One, one writer described barrenness itself throughout the Old Testament, that this was the type of, of thinking that they would have had. How would they have viewed barrenness? And it really is more than I think that our culture would look at it. This is how they describe this type of barrenness. A barren wife means the death of the family line. No offspring, no seed will continue the line of descent of the man whose wife had a dead womb. For a barren woman to have a child is akin, therefore, to the resurrection of a corpse from the dead. See, it's not just barrenness leading to childbearing, it's out of death, life comes. That's another pattern that we start at every one of these births and other stories as well. We start to be like, so God brings life out of death? Yes. This is seen not just in her barrenness, but also in their age. Hebrews 11 verse 12, therefore from one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So each time we see a child born to a barren womb, we also start to expect life out of death by the power of God. It's a pattern. It's a type of God's resurrection work. So as we anticipate God visiting his people to redeem us, if we're paying attention to the Old Testament as it continues to progressively be revealed to us, we should also expect the birth of an unlikely child and resurrection from the dead. We should expect it. That's how Jesus talks about the Old Testament as well. Like in the different times, he's kind of like, you didn't know? Have you read? How could you not expect this? And then Paul saying, right, that Christ rose on the third day in accordance with or just as the Old Testament had said, according to the scriptures or in line with what God has said and the patterns that God has laid into the workings of his story. God visits his people and he does it to keep his promises. He does that not just that he will be shown to be faithful. God acts for God. We need to be okay with that. He acts for his glory, but he repeatedly reveals himself to be a God that doesn't only act for his glory, but he also acts for the good or for the joy of his people. God could just act for God, and he acts for himself first, but in acting for himself and for his glory it's for the good and the joy of his people. There is a flowing, he's bringing us into that glory. It's not separate things. So it's like God visits his people to keep his promises uh, because of his character. It's like, amen, right? That's true, but that's not all that happens here. He visits his people to keep his promises for our eternal joy. At the beginning of this sermon, I tried to emphasize the tension that's been building throughout the narrative thus far, right? 30 years, nine chapters, however many sermons for us. And we've tried to point this out in many of our sermons about Abraham and especially Sarah. It's been a repeated point. God has been creating this tension. Even before we meet Sarah, even when she's already barren, that was still God. God has kept Abraham and Sarah childless throughout their long marriage. We know this from an audience standpoint, right? Like uh, omniscient narrator. 
It's like, so we know what's going on, even if the characters don't know what's going on, but here the characters do know what's going on. It's not just like, well, God's in control of everything, but like that we see that, but they say that. Abraham in chapter 15, talking to the Lord, God, behold, you, you have given me no offspring. You keep talking about offspring and seed and children, but you haven't given me any. And then Sarah in chapter 16 says the same thing. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Are they wrong? They're not wrong. God was the author of this tension. God was the author of this sadness. Why? At least part of that answer, part of it, is to accentuate the glory and the joy that Abraham and Sarah would experience when that tension is resolved and when their sadness is turned to joy at the birth of Isaac. A joy that is uncontainable, a joy that requires sharing, and and joy that actually bursts out in laughter. Chapter 21 wouldn't be so great if it hadn't been for chapters 11 through 20. Laughter has been the theme of this birth, if you remember. When God first promised a son to Abraham through Sarah, what, what does this look like? I don't know, but Abraham, who is old, fell on his face and laughed. Like, fell on his face. Like, and it's not, like I love laughing, and normally it's like the Chuck Norris jokes like 18 years ago, or dad joke puns could get, so like crying, laugh, can't breathe, right? I have to stop looking at the jokes. It's like I, I kind of go over. I don't think anything has ever caused me to just fall on my face and laugh. But that's what happens here. And I think that when Abraham fell on his face before the Lord and laughed, I think it was an incredulous, like, yeah, right, that's ridiculous kind of laugh. But God comes right back and he repeats his promise, adding now that Abraham was to call his son's name Isaac, which means he laughs. It's like, oh, you're going to laugh about it? Oh, you'll laugh all right. And you'll laugh every time you say his name. And then in chapter 18, Sarah's listening behind the door of the tent. She hears God speak the same promise about her, and she laughs to herself, and then she denies it when God questions her. And probably, like we said, her laugh was really more of one doubting and and born out of her pain. Sometimes you just laugh to let off the emotional steam so you don't have to cry about it again. The tears are all gone. Laughter is kind of all that's left. I think that's more of what's happening for Sarah in chapter 18, because they had both been living in this cycle of pain and promises. Can you envision that? This cycle of pain and promises. It starts off in chapter 11, however many years they've been married, uh, the, the pain and the sadness and the disappointment of barrenness. And that pain is bad enough. But then promises come in from God of just like offspring and seed and son and descendants and all these type of things. And so then like in that pain, right, there's promises and you're kind of like, oh, so my pain's going to be at an end. But their pain isn't at an end. Like, it just continues to drag on. And then more promises come in, but the pain is still there. And it's just like like that that hope could start to get lower every single time. It's just like, oh, please stop saying the promises if you're not going to fulfill them. Like, that's what our hearts would do. Like, do you you feel that? It's kind of like, okay, yeah, great. But can you stop saying it if you're not going to do it? Because I'd rather not hear it because it just makes the pain worse. Like the waiting of that cycle, pain and promises spoken. And then when the promises aren't yet fulfilled and the pain lingers, it just makes it harder. And it stretches on for them over and over. For 30 years, those promises have actually made the pain worse until we get to chapter 21. And now, here in chapter 21, Abraham names his son, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. He laughs. Or you could, actually, brother, you could have like these really cool Hebrew guttural sounds. It's actually like Yitzchak. So if you want to start going by, Michaela, you should just call him that. You know, it, you just get this tzah and this kh, right? Leanne could always tell when I was practicing my Hebrew vocab because even if you're saying it silently, you can't make a guttural sound without kh. So I'd just be there and like, you know, flip cards in the, on the sofa. Kh. Kh. 
to be like, oh, you're practicing Hebrew. How could you tell, right? Because Yitzhak, right? It's the same word, though, in verb or in name. Every single instance of laughter is Isaac. Abraham fell on his face, Isaacing. And the Lord said, yeah, we're going to call him Isaac. And then Sarah's like, Isaac's to herself. Why are you Isaacing? I didn't Isaac. Yes, you did Isaac. And then we get here. Sarah gets the honor of the last word in the story. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Incredulous laughter, gone. Painful, doubting laughter, gone. And not just gone, actually transformed to joyful laughter for Sarah. And I think for Abraham too. But it doesn't even stop there. Like she recognizes that her joy and laughter will spread to everyone who hears about this birth. It, it's, it's so amazing. Like it's, it's, it's a really good joke. But not a joke of cruelty or mockery. Like a joke of like, oh, let me tell you a good one. Where, where she can laugh over it herself as well. Because the promise has been fulfilled. And the pain is gone. And all that's left is joy. And if she's going to laugh about it, you can laugh about it too. God has made this laughter for her. God, who made her barren, has made laughter for her. Some things are too good and too amazing not to laugh at them in joy because laughter is the the overflow of joy. It's like when you can't keep it in, you just got to laugh about it. Like, and not just the, the emoji, like, LOL, I'm laughing. And you look at them, just like, we see just nothing. Like, but then it's like, no, 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 I really laughed out loud on that one. I really spit out the water that I had in my mouth because I took a drink when you said that. That was funny. Like, it's that overflow of joy. And when full joy has replaced deep sorrow, the laughter gets even bigger. Like, the greater the replaced sorrow, the greater the joyful laughter. Here's what stuck out to me from this text. Because I believe this is also a pattern of God's working. So if we are God's people, if we are God's people, acknowledging our sin, trusting in Christ, forgiven and longing for his salvation, if we are God's people, then like Sarah, we will laugh over God's work in us. We will laugh about it. Just like Abraham and Sarah, we all experience pain sometimes very deep pain. Then we read the scriptures and we hear of the unconstrained will of God. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. And we read of the unlimited power of God. Who can stay his hand? Right? Omnipotent. He does all that he pleases. We read about the unconstrained will of God. We read about the unlimited power of God. We read about the perfectly faithful, loving care of God toward us. And sometimes the pain can hurt worse. So your will has been against me at this point in your power. You have chosen to not deliver now. And this is faithfulness. This doesn't feel like faithfulness. Right? And the world wrestles with that too, right? That problem of evil, all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God who doesn't act. And everybody's kind of like, that doesn't compute. Can we as God people recognize and like admit the fact that that doesn't always compute for us as well? Like that's the struggle of Job, and that's the struggle of Elijah, that's the struggle of Abraham and Sarah, and that's the struggle for us. Where is your faithfulness? Why? If you, you're not late. You didn't forget. You're not away. Why won't you visit? Visit now. Why didn't you visit yesterday? Why didn't you visit a year ago? Like we struggle with that and we stay in that pain and promises cycle of waiting. And then the cycles of that unrelieved pain and the unfulfilled promises haunt us. And our flesh feeds on that to doubt. And the world criticizes God for his plan and Satan like rubs his despicable little hands and be like, I'm going to get him on this one. 
And like the psalmists, our hearts cry out, how long, O Lord? It's not that you can't, you can. So why won't you? And why won't you now? That's what how long means. Is why it's in the Psalms so much. Well, when will you put evil rulers under your feet? When will you judge the guilty who have oppressed your people and attacked us? When will you heal our sicknesses and wipe away our tears? Right? But, oh, the, the blind see and the lame leap. Why am I still in prison? John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask, are you the guy or are you not the guy? How long? When will you overthrow that awful last enemy of death who has robbed us of our loved ones? When? Listen, do you know that Abraham and Sarah struggled with with those same questions? But God held them in the tension of pain and sorrow and not yet fulfilled promises. He held them there until the perfect moment. And then laughter and joy just erupted. And just like Sarah would have forgotten the birth pains because of the joy of her little bundle of laughter in her arms, so she likewise, in a moment, forgot the decades of sorrow and weeping. It's wiped away because of the joy that happened because God had visited her and kept his promises. Brothers and my sisters, This too is the promise of God for you. Whatever your deepest hurts and sorrows and losses are, whatever they are, they will one day be turned to joy and laughter. I'm not telling you to try to turn them into it now. Would not be so calloused and so fake as to be like, let's just all laugh about it. We can't now. We will then. We will. I'm telling you that God will do that for you. For God's people, the cycles of pain and unfulfilled promises and the waiting of this life, all of it leads to an eternity of joy and exultation and laughter in God's presence. That is coming. And I know that we're not going to get there with most of our trials and sadnesses in this life. I'm not even saying, again, I'm not even telling you to try. And it's okay that we're not going to get there. I think it's actually to be expected as we still live in so much of that tension. As if, should we expect all of the joy when we're not with Christ in person and when we're not in heaven? Like, should we expect heaven on earth here? We shouldn't. We continue to live in this type of brokenness and the suffering. We're still waiting, but here and now, we, we often even just start off, th- these are steps in my mind. Um, steps might be the weird word. I just, I'm, I'm, I don't know how else to say it. So let's just say steps or levels as it comes to this waiting, that often we begin struggling merely to endure trials and sorrows. How am I even going to survive today? How am I going to survive this week, right? There's just the survival and endurance of just like, okay, I, I guess... I guess I can live right now. And then as we endure God's strength, God's grace, and we get used to new painful realities, I guess this is what life is now, then we struggle to accept them from the Lord. When we get through it and we're able to start to think about it, we do struggle with that. It's like, is this from the Lord? Is this not from the Lord? We have to make a decision. As God's people, students of his word, children with his spirit indwelling us, we'd be like, God was in this. And we struggle just to accept it. We wrestle with that. And if you're not the sufferer, don't push people into the acceptance. Like, don't show up at the funeral and be like, this is from the Lord. It was bad timing. But then as we endure the trials, we endure the sorrows, we accept them from the Lord by the work of the Holy Spirit, our cries of no, Lord, no, they begin to quiet. They quiet maybe to an, okay, Lord, okay. You say that whatever you ordain is right, that you ordained this, 
We go to Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then as the years go by, as we've learned new lessons, as we've felt God's comfort, and then as we've been able to share that comfort with others in a way that we never would have been able to without our own pain, without that own comfort coming to us, perhaps we can begin to give thanks to God for the good that surrounds our pain and tragedy. We endured it in the moment. We submitted to it. It's from the hand of the Lord. And then we start to see like, oh, like look at these good things that have come because of this suffering. Because of this diagnosis, like look at, look at all of these different things. And we are in a sense, like we're, we're not at the center of it. Like giving thanks for the good that has surrounded something is different than giving thanks for that. And maybe we never can actually get to the point and be like, yep, I'm glad that this happened. We can be glad for everything that surrounds it, but the thing itself. But one day, we will be glad for that thing whatever it is. We will be glad for it. It will be a source of joy. We will rejoice freely over it. We will exult in God over it. We will laugh over it. There will be nothing holding us back from just delighting in everything that God has done in our lives. Then, and birth is one example of that, of course, right? Just kind of like, haven't experienced it, watched it, right? And then it's just like the, the, the hormonal flood of just kind of like, why, why any family has more than one child, right? Because of whatever hormonally, joyfully brings in that you'd be willing to go through it again, right? But heartache can be the same type of thing. Heartache of, of breakups, I think, through my own life. Surprisingly, there were more relationships I had than just Leanne. I don't know how this happened, uh, but other people, other, other women, girls, whatever, were uh, potentially interested in me for a time, but that didn't work out. Like in sixth grade, uh, I won't give names, uh, but the end of sixth grade, my heart was broken. And then again in 11th grade, right, just the end of a relationship, and, and then again in college at least once. And at each of those times, right, life was over, and I would never love again. How tragic. Or so I thought. What about now? Like I had to think back through like, where were those relationships, right? Who were those people? But how wonderful it is that those relationships fell apart. I know you've said the same thing. You were all the way to engagement, Keith was, and he shared that story. Any regrets? No, me neither. To be like, I'm not going to say the names of these girls, but just like, just let it go, right? Like, like I would trade her for them? That's ridiculous. Like, it's funny that you laughed at me, right? And I'm not hurt by it. It's like, yeah, sixth grade, 11th grade, uh, sophomore, junior year of college. Be like, just let it all pass. How great that is. Why? Because of the joy of loving Leanne. And not just loving Leanne, but loving Elise, Juliet, and Adele, and Maria, and James, and Lily. And if those relationships had happened, I wouldn't have my family. Let alone if the Lord had not led us as a family here. Do I have any regrets about those pains? Like, go back to my sixth grade self and pat that little guy with the terrible hair and glasses and kind of chubby, just me, I'm the same. I don't know why you guys like me, but just be like, it's okay, buddy, because one day, (laughs) but she's broken my heart. But the joy of now makes the sorrow a joke. It's funny. And not everything is that clear cut, of course. It isn't as if those past rejections stop hurting in this life, because I still remember the names and I still remember the scenarios, right? But in that life, they will stop hurting. I really see two options regarding the pains and sorrow of this life as viewed in eternity. I think there's two options for us as God's people, and we have to say which one is biblical, like which reflects the character of God and his work in his people. Two, two options. One, we will forever regret, ignore, or forget the sorrows and tragedies of this life as though God wasn't in control. Or we will forever celebrate them 
and remember them and laugh over them because they were from our good and wise Father for His glory and our good. Which of those two do you believe is true? God visits His people to keep His promises for our eternal joy. And I believe, and I believe Scripture teaches this, I believe that when history is complete and eternity begins, when we see God and we know God as He knows us, and when His glorious victory for His people and against His enemies is fully accomplished, on that eternal day, we will rejoice with God and each other over everything that God ordained for our lives. We will rejoice with God over everything that He brought into our lives. No exceptions. And I think that is the biblical hope given to us in the gospel that we are to fix our eyes on, which isn't be happy about it now. It's look to that day. Be confident that it was from the Lord. He's going to keep his promises. And when we see it with him and from his perspective, we will agree with him that it was wise and good and that his glory was on display. I see no other option according to Scripture. And I see that lived out in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. That if we were to ask her in 21.7, well, maybe it has to be a little bit. Let's give her some time to process. But I think she'd been like, yeah, this was great. Look at what God did. And then it becomes a foundation for everybody else. We're like, wow, look at what God did for Sarah and in Sarah and through Sarah. But that hope was purchased by Christ for us. And that hope was pictured in the resurrection for us. And it is that hope that can sustain endurance in our faith. God visits his people to keep his promises for our eternal joy. Thank you that this is true. Thank you that you do not forget and you are not gone. Uh, you are an ever-present, all-knowing, faithful, caring, loving, powerful God. You are displaying your glory and you are bringing us into your glory and to your joy. You will keep all of your promises. They are yes and amen in Christ. And we have a joy that we can't that is unspeakable that we are, we are looking forward to. Thank you that we can taste that joy now, but please give us eyes and hope for the joy that is awaiting us. And, and may that strengthen us to endure as we, we long for the fulfillment of all of your promises when Christ visits us finally to rescue us. Amen.